Good morning, Sarah Heppala. You're glowing. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Yes. I have gotten younger since you saw me last. That's great. Yeah, um, I'm aging backward, which was something I learned about on eHow, and uh, it's working. How oh, well I what is eHow is that that sort of great thing where like everything's sort of explained like super clearly, like the little wikis, like they show you like how do I get three things on this page? It's a dunk dunk dunk. You've got it. Is that what eHow is? I've been using eHow jokes for like uh, 10 years, and I, I don't even know that it's still around. But I just think it's the funniest thing to tell somebody that you learned something. Like people would say like, well, where did you learn how to be a writer? And I would be like, well, I read a piece on eHow. And I just, I thought it was really funny, but it's becoming less of an effective joke. Although Nancy is laughing quite hard right now. Um, if, if people don't know what eHow is, it just sounds like a weird, like I've just made two guttural noises. eHow. eHow. But it's, what, it's exactly what it sounds like. eHow. eHow.com. Ehow.com is is basically, I think that's how you bring that joke home. Uh, um, um, the truth I, is, is that I went and got a facial a oh. couple days ago, and she does some things that you can't do at home, which I'm just going to let that sound as dirty as you want to make it. But there's like little, she'll put some things on my face and they sort of zap. I think it's oxygen, hmm. or maybe it's... Hmm poison <laughs> i have no idea little magic crystals uh well yeah. when you're talking about getting younger so uh first of all sarah heppler what's the name of this show i think it's called smoke em if you got em it is even though it's super early here we, sh we shouldn't exactly be on our game getting everything uh right we we by the way guys we podcast in the mornings for you which is weird i don't think i don't know anybody else that that actually records in the mornings but I know. Everybody we else do. is like, it does it under the cover of night. And yeah. they're always like, yeah, it's been a long day. And here we are at 9 p.m. And you and I are like, it is friggin' 730 in the That's morning right. in Dallas, Texas. So a little later today, uh, I'm going to be co-hosting uh, the, uh, well, it used to be called the morning show on Compound Media. It's called something else now. I'm not even sure. But I'm going to be co-hosting with Bill Schultz. And you'll be We'll be uh, patching you in to talk about Depp Heard. But Bill Schultz, they always send these really ridiculous little uh, articles that we like might get to, might not. And one was this woman that said, you know what keeps you looking young? It's orgasms. Hell yeah. And I am going to, uh, I, uh, I am endorsing that. Basically, is there any science behind that, or was who, that just a good who guess? Who cares, Sarah Hepler? So, um, we yeah, should so talk about orgasm sometime because I think it's a really fascinating subject. Because, you know, one of the things I've noticed about myself and my sex life is that orgasm is almost detached from actual sex with people, it is delivered to me through. What? No, this is true. What else do you have sex with besides people? A purple vibrating robot. I can <laughs> oh, introduce okay. you. No, 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 I don't. I'm not, no, I've no. embarrassed Nancy. I, you, not only have you embarrassed me, but uh, yes, it's not my It's not my thing. Let's just oh, leave it at that. The is not your thing. Not, let's so leave I think, it at that. Ah. <laughs> I think that, uh, speak, that, that talk of vibrators is really fascinating because... You know, it became very in vogue for women to have them. You know, I... What? When? Oh, hell yeah. I think it starts around Sex and the City in 2000 and 
two, three, they did a rabbit vibrator episode and the sales of the rabbit went through the roof. And, you know, in the last, like, like all the shows about cool young people that I see now, they've got a reference to a vibrator. Um, like even that, that show Frankie and Grace or Grace and Frankie or whatever with uh, Jane Jane Fonda, Fonda and Lily, and Lily Tomlin. Tomlin. There yep. was a like a vibrator in their main art, like the, you know this idea that just because they're old, they don't want to let go of that sexual side of themselves. But for a lot of women, um, you know, orgasm is a complex conversation, and you know the the direct delivery system of a vibrator is very different than human body parts or or what sexual interaction is um, it's like it's like going to the drive-thru yeah it's, just, it's fast yeah. food it's yeah. orgasm fast food and i think that you know for a long time it was perceived as a, a social and physical and sexual good and i'm starting to hear sex therapists say put away your vibrators stop it well this is something you've reported on it's not something i've reported on and we'll probably talk about it Maybe more in depth another time, but I will just add that I do have a friend that said to me, I guess she has a vibrator and always has, and that it it makes it makes sex with a human man a little bit problematic because you're used to literally like hi, I'll have two hamburgers and a shake, and then you're out of there in you know thirty seconds. What's not? Yeah, and and I have a different experience with that. It's just they're very different experiences. Like one is fast food and one is a slow French banquet. Yeah. Yeah. Slow French banquet. That's the name of the next album. Okay. So Sarah Hevla, good morning. Uh, There are, I I definitely, definitely want to get caught up um, with Depp Heard, but first, as Matt would say, um, we are going to have an little episode for you guys where we read some reader mail because we've been getting some really good reader mail. I, I love our listeners. They're pretty vocal with us. They send they send emails, which is really cool because then, you know, people are enjoying things, what they like, maybe what you don't like. We did get one guy that says, you know, five stars, but please don't eat again on your yeah. podcast. I don't know if it was homemade pie. That's all I'm saying. Um, but um, send us your questions or comments or whatever. And then, I don't know, probably in a week or so, we'll do a We'll do a little uh, listener only, our reader email, et cetera, episode. So send those in. We're easy to find. Um, and then, uh, so Sarah Hepla. And also have- questions yeah. that people have or things that they want us to talk about. Well, you know, we've just brought up the orgasm. So I'm imagining we're going to have a few people um piggybacking onto that. Speaking of that, so I just had, um, some of you guys might know that I have a little media site called uh, palomamedia.com. One of the people I do it with is Scott Ross in uh, London, and he's great. He does the, the the person of the day, and you should head over and see them because he is just killing it with these things. Just the craziest people. Maybe you've never heard of them. Maybe you've heard of their exploits, but he does this really cool little mini bio. But we were having a little Zoom this morning, and he he had this question. It said FMK, and then something or other. I was like, what's FMK? And he's like, oh, fuck, Mary, kill. I was like, Oh, oh I, I remember I, that game. Yeah, well, I guess I I've heard of it obviously, but I've never like played it. I guess you know, I don't know if you play it or you just do it. I maybe I was like had a little kid at that time and wasn't sitting in bars and talking about it, but I was like, "Well, give me one." He's like, "Okay." So here's one that would have been from like 2001. 
Yeah. Fuck, Mary, kill. Osama bin Laden. Good night. Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein. What the fuck? I'm like, is I'm this? like how do we even do this? That's <laughs> not even fair. He's like, that's the whole point. It's just like ridiculous. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? Anyway, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, uh, yeah, send us. My a, mind is still spinning. I can't, can't put any. You can't do this. Like one, you have to marry. One, you have to fuck. Like no. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. So yes, things you might want us to talk about too. And I've got some things that I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be talking about soon that I'm going to be covering because I'm flying off pretty soon on a story. Um, but Sarah, Nancy. let's catch up. Let's catch up on Deb Heard. It's been a spicy meatball in that courtroom. By the time this show airs or drops or whatever we call it, flies into the rainbow. Uh, that's what I call it. Um, it, it. the The trial will be wrapped. It is finishing up on Friday, and they made a point to do that because they wanted to finish before Memorial Day. The jurors will start deliberation after that. We don't know how long that will take. Um, so, you know, we're recording this on Thursday. This is the penultimate day of the courtroom drama. Yesterday was a big day because they had one of their most high-profile witnesses in supermodel Kate Moss. Oh, that was just yesterday? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually watched a little clip of it. Well, you probably watched the whole thing because her entire testimony was less than three minutes. It was the shortest okay. thing I'd ever seen. I don't really frequent courtrooms, but I was just sort of like, that's like a commercial. Um, she was testifying via video link from England and, you know, there's a cute moment if you're watching the, the trial and they've, they're testing her voice and they've got the camera on Johnny Depp and, you know, the judge says, can you count down for me? And she's like, five, four, three, two. And, and Johnny Depp's face just, he just gives this little smile which is like, you know, you can remember, like, I don't know what's going through his mind right now, but he's got to be so fucking grateful that this woman that he dated in the 90s is showing up for him and the sound of her voice. And she has this little, a little bit of a Nancy Rommelman, like little girly squeaky Squeak. voice. And it's so distinctive. And, he, you know, you can see him, his head kind of dip, dipping back in time to when they were together. It's actually really sweet. Um, the, the Her testimony is very short. She basically just says, hey, listen, uh, I uh, Johnny Depp never pushed me down the stairs like Amber Heard had said. Earlier in the trial, Amber Heard refers to her own fear that Johnny might push her down the stairs because of a rumor about him pushing Kate Moss down the stairs. Now, it's to be determined whether that was really a rumor or something that Amber Heard created in her own mind. However, she didn't introduce this on the witness stand. And more than once, apparently. I think, if I was reading this correctly, she said that twice during the trial. She brought it up. I don't know if so. she said it twice. I know that the first time she did it, Johnny Depp's lawyer, Ben Chu, actually pumped his fist, which everybody watching Court TV noticed. And so there was a lot of, like, why did he just do that? And he, and he did that because it allowed them to introduce Kate Moss in rebuttal. Oh, God, this is so labyrinthine. Wow. 
God. And so Kate Moss comes on and says, you know, one day we were in Jamaica on vacation. It was raining outside. I slipped down the stairs and screamed and, you know, Johnny took care of me. And, uh, you know, it's a like they don't even ask her about the relationship. They don't even ask her. And they just basically ask her to rebut this. Everybody's on the clock now. They've only got a certain number of hours each. Like they've been allotted a certain number of hours. So the clock is literally ticking on each side. They have to be very careful who they're putting up there because, you know, there's a countdown clock that says you have X amount of of time left. Okay. So um, like, for instance, Amber's side was supposed to put up Johnny at one point and they decided not to probably because he's so sort of expansive and meandering yeah. and his answers yeah. that they were just like, we don't have time for this. So, so, but, but that's jo- also what a weird, I mean, it's almost like, well, we're just not going to bring the star out of our, we're not going to bring the thing that, I mean, they could, if they, if they have the goods, make him step into a million holes, but no, we're not going to do it because we don't have time. That to me is a little suspect. No, right? well, well, uh, the plaintiff's side, you know, so Johnny's side, uh, calls him up after Kate Moss. So he does he does go back. Oh. He goes back yesterday. He was supposed to go back Monday. It was canceled. He he goes back Wednesday. Okay. And he gives testimony. Uh, you know, he's so funny when he's on the stand because he, at the beginning, it's always like, like there was this guy that testified a couple days ago. It was sort of a disaster for Amber's side, but he was a psychiatrist that had determined that Johnny had cognitive decline and from the drug use. And part of why he determined that was, he said in cross-examination, he had watched movies. <laughs> and, you know, it was just sort of like, wait, what now? He never actually directly, um, it, you know, uh, it not interviewed, but like evaluated Johnny Depp. Oh, and, I thought you meant like Johnny Depp had cognitive decline because he'd watched movies. No, meaning he watched Johnny Depp's movies and thought, oh man, I detect cognitive decline. Exactly. Yeah. It was it, real sketchy. It, and um and and this guy has uh seems to have run afoul of a of a therapeutic uh code of conduct called the Goldwater rule, which basically means that you're really not supposed to diagnose people that you have not Right. personally so, evaluated. It goes back yeah. to the press doing that around Barry Goldwater. That's why it's called that. Um, anyway, that guy was uh, sort of a joke. Um, but basically, but I will say, when Johnny Depp takes a stand, he's just, he's, it's almost like he creaks into gear or something like that. He's so rusty at the beginning. And, you know, I was watching him and I was like, God, I think he really does have cognitive decline because he he meanders and he sort of can't get himself into gear. But then after a little bit of time, it's like he really clicks in and the rest of his testimony was quite strong. He basically went through uh, the fact that he helped get Amber Heard her role in Aquaman, something that she had disputed. He also brings up. Video. I'm. I'm sorry. There are pictures of him during his honeymoon on the Orient Express, where he has black eye, like a very splotchy face, and what looked like a shiner on his eye. Now, this had been shown earlier, and Amber Heard said, "I think that's been photoshopped." And okay. so, uh, you know, and it's quite distinctive. It's it's funny because we've seen a ton of photos of her uh, that she took, like photo after photo after photo, and and it's. 
I got to say, none of them feel direct. Like, oh, yes, that is obviously what she's purporting it to be. A a lot of them are like, you got to squint. Like, is that a red or... I can't quite tell and and they, it looks bad, but I can't quite see what's going on. This one was because it was a very candid shot. It, it it wasn't somebody sort of like turning into the light. It was a candid shot. And he just has this like giant splotch on his eye. And it's really it's really uh, weird because they're all dressed up. He's in a white tuxedo. She's in a black dress. They had taken the Orient Express train on their honeymoon. It's this sort of like decadent uh, tr- you know, old-fashioned train ride across. And they, they're ending yeah. up in Shanghai. Yeah. So, um, but with what we also saw, which we hadn't seen, was a photo of him in Shanghai. So this is like a few days later or a week later. And what you see is the the sort of the pattern. that you get. Yeah, the, yeah, the bruising yeah. that you get. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had a black eye. I did have I, one once. I've had three black eyes, two at the same time because I was beat up. So I had a double black eye. What I remember about it too was so weird was it was like the top of my eyelids. I looked like I had on a half inch line of purple oh, black uh, eyeliner, not just the under part. And then the, th- <laughs> the third one, because I was in the bathtub with my, my daughter's dad at the time and I fell forward and my <laughs> face hit the spigot. Anyway, oh. I, gave my, I gave myself a black eye. But um, I have a question about, uh, and, and I don't know if they went into this. Now, when I received my black eyes, when I was actually kicked in the eyes, like it takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of power on the, on the whatever's giving you the black eye. So is this, is the supposition that Amber Heard gave him a black eye? I mean, that's, that would take some doing. I mean, you know, to get, first of all, if someone's punching you in the face, your reflexes, if you have reflexes, and maybe he didn't, maybe he was buzzed out of his brain or whatever, is you grab their hand right? Or you, you duck. I mean, you're, you, you know this, your eyes are going to protect themselves. Even if you're sleeping, somehow your eyes are going to know to protect themselves. So it just sounds to me, it's like, wow, she, she clocked him. That's, that's pretty extreme. It is. And, and just to clarify, if we have new listeners, the story of you're getting kicked in the face is something that you told in, uh, a, podcast we had called you're the man now and it was about a high school relationship that you had yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. and the the answer to your question is that yeah she just he describes it as that you know they had a fight she clocked him uh he gave her you know she gave him a shiner he you know it's, it's it's interesting the trial her side often describes him as so much bigger than her and and sort of double her strength and you see pictures of them and they look about the same height when she's wearing yeah. heels. Yeah. She is obviously a very thin, slender woman, but he is not a big guy. No, he's small. And the idea that he's twice her size is is ludicrous. Um, he, he He's not Jason Momoa. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the black eye uh, now... I, if I were wanting to shed skepticism on this story, I would ask what he was drinking and if he fell that night. Because yeah. my black eye story is because I fell down a flight of stairs in New York when I was 25 and I was right. drunk and I ended up in the in the hospital with concussion. And and I ended up with with a black eye that that healed very strange. I mean, I would get these little like like purple uh Yeah. And then it turns crescents. Green. 
crescent moons under yeah and then it turns green and yeah yeah like so and like like you said like prunes. like my little lines were underneath my eye not over yeah. my eye yeah. um and so that's what it looks like in the shanghai picture that that we show and i have to say they they are quite convincing they're more convincing than than her photo evidence and in fact we saw uh yesterday we heard from a guy that was an expert on you know alteration of photos and he says you know that the amber heard photos were almost certainly altered now that is not the completely damning evidence you might think because it could have been uh from compression or sending the photos or whatever like there's other ways that it could have been altered that don't necessarily speak to nefarious ways but anyway depp on the stand you know, his last his last moments there, I thought, were quite uh, quite effective. They ask him what it's been like to sit there and watch this trial. And, you know, he goes on a pretty powerful riff that I'm sure you can find on YouTube because people would have, would have captured it, but I'll, I'll quote you just a little bit of it. You know, he says, ridiculous, humiliating, ludicrous, painful, savage, unimaginably brutal, cruel, and all false, all false. And, you know, he is convincing in this moment. He's an actor. But he's delivering these lines. I believed him. So, you know, there's just there's there's a lot of other stuff that didn't go well for Amber yesterday. Um, There was a guy from TMZ that was brought to the stand. Now, he doesn't work there anymore, but he used to. Now, TMZ is the big gossip site. And he is asked about how they got pictures of Amber with a bruise when she filed her restraining order at the courthouse. Which we've already talked about and I had some questions about. Is that really how that stuff works? You don't send your lawyer to the courthouse? You don't make a call? You don't have the cops come? No, you you show up making sure that you're visible? With I mean, bruise. by the way, one of the interesting things about this day, we already know that Johnny Depp is on tour uh, with his band in Europe for a couple months, so he's out of town. It also happens to be the day that his movie, Alice Through the Looking Glass, is coming out. It also happens to be his daughter's birthday. Um, And a week after his mother, Betty Sue, died. So just to give you a little context of where he was at, on this day that Amber Heard goes to the courthouse, what she described to be a very quiet, low-key courthouse. Nobody was there. What courthouse was it? uh, L.A. something. Okay. I got... Yeah, I got married at Beverly, Hill, Beverly Hills City Courthouse. Oh, could have been there. Beautiful, no, beautiful courthouse. No idea. And, you know, she makes a point that she always puts on foundation and she always she doesn't leave the house without, you know, doing her face just a little bit because paparazzi are always going to be there, but she doesn't wear any makeup that day. What are the chances? So I think it's pretty well known that if you are trying to, whether you're a lawyer trying to win an argument or you're trying to get back at your spouse or, or whatever it is, you're, you're an athlete trying to look for, you know, a hole in the other, uh, the other team's plays, you take advantage 
of of moments of weakness, right? That's how it works, right? So you don't you don't do it when you're sitting and having breakfast with Johnny Depp in the kitchen and there's nothing going on. You you he's gone. He's weak. It's also a moment where there's going to be possibly some reflective shine for you because he's got a movie coming out. So this, I mean, I'm painting her as the villain right now only because we can go back and forth on this, but it seems to me quite deliberate. I also still, I should, I should actually look this up or ask a lawyer friend or, or, Hey guys, I'm sure we have an attorney or two here. If you know the answer of, if you have a client and obviously she's a pretty high powered personality, her husband is a you know, worldwide mega movie star. There are going to be lawyers in your world. There's just no doubt that you would have access to an attorney. If it was the case that you wanted to file a restraining order, would would you go? Would you do it for your client? How does that work? I, I would love to know. If someone has an answer for that, that'd be great. Because I just don't see it. I do not, I don't think it works the way she's making it sound. I mean, it can, but it's just, it's just hinky. Well, she brought her publicist to the courthouse with her. It wasn't just her lawyer. And oh, what we learned- publicist. Oh, well, yeah. Because when I'm really, really, really super sad and weak and feeling- at my lowest, the person I want with me is my publicist. And one of the things we learned from the TMZ guy is that he was tipped off by Amber Heard. Oh, oh, shit. how did that go down on the stand? I'm sorry. This is getting so salacious. I mean, it was just sort of like, you know, what can you do? I mean, it, it's it was just right there. Like, look, it's from... It's from the lion's mouth now. You know, she is the one that shared the information that she was going to the courthouse. Uh, sh- they also had a video of Depp slamming cabinets, um, the one that has has been shared around quite a bit. Yeah. You know, he's, he's in a sort of anger, in a rage. Yeah, we linked it that, in one of the episodes. That yeah. was also sent to TMZ by Amber Heard. So does this... To your mind, I mean, one of the things I haven't listened like a whole lot to why she says she stayed in the marriage, um, even though there were a lot of problems and she felt frightened or there was abuse, but that she just she just loved him so much that she wanted to stay. I, I feel like sometimes we have a theme here, like that which should be called like the Bad Wives Club. I mean, we started with um with Jada Pinkett Smith, like not. Right in my estimation, protecting her husband at an extremely vulnerable moment. And now we have what appears to be, to me, Amber Heard taking, definitely not protecting her relationship. She is looking for moments to, um, to seek some side of very public revenge. One of the things that she said on the stand was how much she had protected Johnny over the years. Um, She had, you know, she's asked repeatedly why she did not speak about this to certain, like all the different assaults and allegations that she makes. You know, why didn't she make reports earlier? And she's saying, I wanted to protect Johnny. I wanted to protect Johnny. It's unclear to me if she just had a breaking point and decided, you know, I'm done protecting him because I've certainly, I, I, I've seen that happen in people's lives. Or if it's a little more calculating and, and craven and manipulative. Well, so, so, um, 
one thing that I want to say about this restraining order, I think I hadn't really appreciated the significance of this restraining order in the public imagination. You know, when the couple got a divorce and there was a lot of gossip around it, you know, it was sort of this like both sides is everybody's sort of like, oh, these guys are just kind of toxic and it's gross. But her filing that restraining order and getting it is really the detail that turns a lot of people. It It, it is, and, and it's slightly absurd that she would get that restraining order when he was going to be out of town for two to three months. I wonder, I actually don't know um, what the bar is to receive a restraining order. I don't know. Like, could I just walk in and say, I need a restraining order against Sarah Hepla? Like, would they be like, okay. Try it. Yeah. But there we go. I just, just for the sake of the show, Sarah, I will do it. Um, I want, I just don't know what the bar is. Like what, what you have to, do you have to prove anything? Yes, you have to prove something. And and her friend Rocky Pennington was there. And one of the controversies around this is that has been that Adam Waldman, who I incorrectly called Alan Waldman in a previous episode. Adam Waldman is Johnny Depp's lawyer from 2016 onward, although he's not representing him in this trial because he's part of the Amber Heard countersuit. It's so tangled. But anyway, he accuses Rocky and Amber of lying during that testimony to get the restraining order. Sure. Well, if, yeah, because if, if she wasn't really under the kind of threat she's claiming she was, she would have to lie. So what, I just want to jump back for one second. We often see, and we know that we will see, and we have seen the opinion pieces about how, like, you have to be very careful because abusers always blame people who are abusive. They blame the people that they're abusing and saying, I am not I am the actual victim here. And this is, you know, historically why we're being told that, you know, women don't come forward because they're made to look bad. Well, it seems to me in this case, we're, you know, we're the the tables are flipped. What's that expression? It's, you know, she sounds as though she is, if not the primary abuser, she's equally abusive in this relationship, and um, decided to get the upper hand by making herself look like the victim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think people are, obviously, you know, we don't know what all people think of this. The, the, uh, the current idea is that people are very much team Depp. That could be for a lot of different reasons, his popularity. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, Do you get any sense or is it talked about how the jury might be, how this is playing for the jury? The jury is mostly men men of various ages and ethnicities. There are three women, but, you know, some of the people on the jury, in the jury box won't, are ringers. You know, they're not, they're not going to be, I mean, ringers isn't, they're alternates. Right. There's like 16 usually, something like that. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we don't know what the jury pool is going to look like. Right. The I read about the jurors from following my friend James from court, the uh, YouTube <laughs> celebrity, the uh, random 29-year-old turned uh, Depp Heard Twitter celebrity who will often give updates. And this is his one area of expertise, right? Because he's in the actual courtroom every day. And so 
he will usually tweet about like, everybody looks really tired right now. Everybody looks really done with this. One of the things he told me was that when, during that, during that long, you know, the, the, when she keeps turning to the jurors to make eye contact yep. during all her testimony, they are looking down or looking away. What? Whoa, that's, that's weird body language, isn't it? Well, you know, she testified for like two days or something like that. I have to imagine that it was a strategy to have her making eye contact with them for a couple reasons. One is that, you know, Johnny Depp refuses to make eye contact with her. He has said, this has come out on the stand, that after a certain point, he never wanted to make eye contact with her again, and he is not doing it. So she's right in front of him, so it's very awkward for her to look in that direction. So some decision, I think, was made for her to look at the jury. Now, you can understand if you're giving a testimony directly to a juror, the the, the just natural instinct is to make eye contact again. And it is, once you make eye contact with somebody telling stories of pain, it's very difficult not to feel emotionally moved or connected to them. I don't know if this worked in the beginning. I think after it kept happening, like not just with emotional stories, but with like, you know, Amber, were you there that night? And then she'll turn to the jury. Yes, I was. And and I think it's exhausting for them, maybe uncomfortable, because as a jury, you want to try to remain neutral. And so it's, you know, I don't, I don't, I'd be reading their minds. I'd be trying to read their sure, minds sure, sure, to sure, say, sure. but I, I'm projecting myself into that juror box and imagining that it's just kind of like, I don't want to make eye contact with you every single time you give an answer. If I were if I were Amber Heard, or let's say I'm Nancy Rommelman and I am on the stand for something extremely difficult, and and no matter if she's telling the truth or she's lying or whatever, this is not a normal day, not a normal walk in the park. My what I would do is I would definitely talk to the person who was speaking to me, which would be either the defense attorney or someone who was a prosecutor, I would focus on them for a couple of reasons. First of all, I need to pay attention. Number two, when you're in sort of like a crisis situation, like some people when they're crisis situation, they like have a, they have a worry bead or they, they do numbers in their head, something that keeps you focused, that keeps you sort of on task as opposed to sort of dissipating everything and trying to I mean, that would be too many people. There's 16 people there trying to, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I, and I, and I wouldn't do it. It would feel so strange. So that's, that's some, um, that's an interesting strategy on her part um, that she would, I mean, that, that's quite um, ambitious in a way to look at 16 people. And um, it's also sort of strikes me a little bit of, as like a, like a, like a, like a false preacher, you know how they look at yeah. you and they make you feel like you're the important person. I remember when I was pregnant, I was catering this party in LA and uh, Barbara Bush, who her, George Bush was president at the time. She, I think so. Yeah. And um, she was walking, leaving the party, like past like this entire entourage. We were all kind of lined up and she looked at me and nodded at me. And I was like, wow, she really wanted to nod to me. Yes, God, what a, what a dodo. She you know? liked you best. <laughs> but it's like, you know, people are good at this. You know, they have to, of course she has to get good at that. But I guess Amber Heard thinks she might be good at this. I imagine. I imagine so. 
And, you know, one more witness that I want to mention, she didn't go up yesterday, but she went up a couple days ago and it was a little bit cryptic from the, you know, if you're watching the trial, this is somebody that worked at a place called Art of Elysium and she worked with Amber's sister, Whitney Hurd. Uh, Whitney Hurd has testified that she saw this whole fracas on the stairs and Amber was going to push Johnny. I'm sorry, Johnny was going to push Amber down. She Basically, she has testified She's the one witness that has seen the eyewitness to this violence. And so her testimony is very important. Is she credible? Uh, On stand? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, but this woman, but this woman was too. But so anyway, she basically says, you know, somebody asks her, why are you testifying? And she says, because I loved someone and I saw them lying for someone else and I wanted to stop it. And you're going, wait, what? And what she's referring to here is that Whitney Heard worked for her at Art of Elysium. Whitney Heard moved in with her after leaving the penthouse where she lived with her sister after a, after a falling out with her sister. And what I learned from the Nick Wallace newsletter because he had a little bit of insight into this because she had given can't remember if it's a deposition in the UK trial but anyway it's it's entered into the record here but we didn't hear it in court but she had given a statement that said the the whole thing on the stairs went down so differently and Whitney was afraid of her own sister pushing her down the stairs And that her sister had been violent, much like her father had been. And there was a moment after the whole Australia mess, Whitney had said to this woman who testified like, oh, my God, my sister's really done it. She cut off his finger. Oh, so that's why Whitney's former boss got on the stand and said what she did. She's like, I can't I can't countenance having understood something at that point being told it and now something is being told completely differently guys you get to decide but i have to tell you what i know right now exactly good for her i mean you know she she, she, yeah um so what happens so today's thursday the 26th um tomorrow is the final day what happens tomorrow Sarah. Closing arguments from both sides obviously from both sides yeah closing arguments so I don't know who they've got left to call. Um, you know, maybe it's possible we'll see closing arguments start today, but I don't think so. I think they're going to they're going to probably all use up their time. Um, but we are coming to a close. This is the finale of the Depp Heard ordeal. And you know, there is no question that Johnny Johnny's team has made a much stronger case. But I also think we cannot lose sight of the fact that this is a defamation trial. This is not a trial about domestic abuse or mutual abuse. Right, right, and right, right. it is very possible he still loses it. I would not be surprised to see both of them lose their suit and countersuit and for Johnny Depp to be awarded like $1 or something like that. Well, but you know what? That might be okay. Yeah. Because you, what he wanted was quite literally his day in court, or that's what we kind of well, went into this talking about. And he certainly has gotten that. Um, all right. So then the, so is the jury sequestered? Do you know? I don't know. Yeah. I, I do you mean like currently? No, they get to go home. 
They do. It's, they're so- not doing. They've learned. I think. I think we learned our lesson in the OJ thing that that is too high a, yeah, a cost yeah. to extract. Yeah, from people. From lives. people, because you yeah. know, back in the OJ thing lasted a year, which was just absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, but and this lasted six weeks. But no, they're they're going home. What an interesting story that would be to write as a writer to sort of. Um, I mean, you kind of ha- you couldn't do it in real time because they're not allowed to be around press or anything. But to to examine like what someone's life is like when you're when you're one of these jurors and you definitely are not allowed to like listen to anything or watch anything else. Like, do you go home and your husband's like, "Okay, honey, we're gonna play Porchisi and I've made dinner and do we are not really, going to." Do you really I mean, have- not talk to anybody about it? Well, you're not supposed. Oh, sorry. Okay, honest little honest Nancy. Like, I wouldn't. I mean, if I were. Sorry, I wouldn't. If I were a juror, I I made a pledge, right? I I pledged to do that. I would I would not break that pledge. But it would be really hard because, I mean, you'd have to make sure like your neighbors didn't know, or people weren't like outside your house, or your kid wouldn't come home crying because mom, I told Sarah that you were, and now her mom wants. So you know, it would be very very hard to stay hermetically sealed. But I would take it as an interesting challenge, and I I would do it because, I mean, I think you have the obligation. Don't you? I mean, you told them you were impartial. You have to try to do it. I mean, that would be really skanky to like, like oh, yeah. I think so. To, say, to like, tell to, your husband or your no, best oh, friend. Oh, well, actually, you know, yeah. You mean during while it was going on? Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. I would definitely not tell my best friend. There's no way I wouldn't. It would, you're breaking the seal in too many places. Would I choose one person that would likely be, yes, my husband, because like you're in bed with him and it's, he's the one that's, I'm assuming you have a nice husband and he's protecting you and making sure that you have a calm world while you do your, your duty. Um, I have to ask, are you allowed to, like, are you legally allowed to talk to your husband? I just think you should get like a, a sounding board. Yeah, you should get like a sounding board clause where like you're allowed to talk to one okay. trustworthy individual. Well, if that's the case, if that is the le- again, hello legal le- 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 lawyer listeners, say that five times fast. Let us know. I gotta tell you, Sarah, I think I don't think there is that clause. I think you are like that's it. I am. Um, I don't I know. Should I would just never it- be chosen for a jury. I no, just well, this should, I should, I'm a leaker. I should you just never be, be chosen. That's the thing. You wouldn't be because they would have you, they would ask you questions like, do you feel blah, blah, blah. Would you be able? And you'd say, no, I wouldn't be able to. And they're like, okay, thank you so much for your time. And here's your $5 for missing work. And I've only once been uh, called, I've been called to jury duty that I actually went and sat there and they kept you there for three hours and let me go. I didn't even, they didn't even ask me any questions. I got um, $18. You did? Well, I didn't get, I don't need, maybe I got $5. I'm, I would definitely, um, I would definitely serve on a jury if I thought I could be impartial and really listen to it. I would, I would, I would take it to be a fascinating sort of exercise. Um, I well, I could stay quiet on something that wasn't the Depp Heard trial. Well, there you go. So there's just you know the exception makes the rule, right? Yeah. So, um, well, so how long do you think? I mean, obviously the the uh, the common assumption is that juries that come back quickly, you know. They didn't have to debate. It's like, ugh, she's guilty or, oh, he's guilty or whatever. We're going to decide this way. Do you have a prediction how long they're going to be out? I, I don't know if they meet over the weekend, if it sums up on 
Right. Friday, I have no idea. I don't know. Right. That's a good question. And I just have no insight on this. I mean, I don't know okay. at all. I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a hung jury. Um, which and what means does that mean exactly? They can't, they, they just can't, can't get a consensus? Get a consensus. Yeah. Um, but I'd be surprised if it comes back fast. I will say that. Oh, interesting. Well, that's that that makes it more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, I'm going to be traveling next week, but it. Hey, so let's say it does come back kind of quickly. Yeah. For the sake of argument, if we have time, or even when I'm in San Francisco, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Um, maybe we do a maybe we do a video of this. Maybe we do a video episode talking about uh, Depp Heard. Would you let uh? So listeners, let us know if you would like that. We actually um. We could do that in in several ways, but in any case, it's funny because the public in, in, in the public fascination with this is ramping up because of there's there's more and more media coverage. I want to say something. You know, in the last episode, we talked about a lack of media coverage. I think that might be confusing to a lot of people because yeah. there's yes. a there's a glut of media coverage, and I think it's important to explain that what Nancy and I are referring to here is a lack of on-the-ground legacy media coverage that a lot of the places where you would normally be reading, like in my publications, right? Like my publications traditionally were like The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, um, you know, places like that are kind of turning an eye to it. They started to to cover it a couple weeks ago, but very few, if any of them, have had on-the-ground reporters. I went out there myself and only met uh, on-the-ground reporters from other countries Um, and also from the Law & Crime Network, which has really, really managed to bring up their profile uh, here. They showed up. uh, They showed up. You yeah, know, who knew who knew that existed? Yeah. Yeah. And um so so there is in fact a a sort of cacophony of media coverage, but we are talking about media coverage by certain like more respected outlets. Um I think the noise is turning up now because as we're reaching the end of the trial and you have somebody like Kate Moss, I mean, I I posted something on Twitter that was just a screenshot of my live feed that said 1.2 million people watching this right now, which was, and, and, you know, and there's various channels you can go to. That's not just, that just happens to be the YouTube link on, on the law and crime channel. And I I put on Twitter, you know, I, I, the fact that 1.2 million people are watching this right now really gives the lie to the idea that we're all very busy. And I, (laughs) you know, I posted that and, and somebody wrote back and said, yeah, I'm very busy scrolling past Twitter updates about these two insipid people. Um, which, I mean, fair enough. I, I, and it's worth my time to take to tell you that. Yeah, I mean, he's very busy <laughs> making snarky comments about my oh, that's right. observation. So that will keep a person busy if you want to. Yeah, yeah. If you Snark wanna, is very, very. If you want to own people on Twitter. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I get anybody that's sick of this trial. I understand it. I'm still just gonna, I'm gonna say again and again that I think it is a fascinating watershed moment in celebrity conversations around substance abuse, uh, gender wars, uh, even criminal justice, but most particularly it signals a pivot point, if not an end, to the Me Too era. 
I would say it could be an expansion of the Me Too era because we are talking about abuse in a broader way than simply things happen to women. We are talking about things that women do and their complicity in their own sordid dramas, which is something that I have been hungry for in this conversation for some time. But there are going to be people, and we've seen this in the in some of the commentary, the op-eds in these places like The Guardian and New York Times that say, no, this is the end of Me Too. And you're seeing, you know, what I've always said about this idea that when you tell people you can't say that, you are laying the groundwork for someone to say that rather loudly and with great delight. I'm I'm with you, Sarah Hepla. Um, I've thought this conversation has had to expand since the conversation started being had. Um, when we started to see um, accusations of uh, abuse or past abuse or recovered memory of abuse, or I don't, I I wish I had been sober enough to know whether he raped me. I don't remember what happened, but we're going to go with that and have that be absolutely unchallenged and if you unchallenge if you challenge it you're you're part of the problem and we don't care whose lives are destroyed in the process because you know we've got a bigger agenda here and i find all of this bullshit we had somebody um we had somebody write into us yesterday uh please make those tank tops that say hot for due process i'm, I'm so i love it i I'm, love that I'm making idea. them i was on i was online at 11 30 last night looking at, at tank tops to do that with um every case has to be judged on its own merits Every single case. I don't care if 99.9% of them go the way you thought they were going to go or the assumption that you had, and, and that's the way we make laws and that's the way we make culture. Every single case. And I think that uh, uh, someone uh, like an Amber Heard, if she is has been doing a lot of these things for her own agenda or to shine her star or to get opportunity or to be the spokesperson for the ACLU's whatever it was against domestic violence, whatever that category they made up for her. Women's amb ambassador for women's voices. Um, I think that this just it was all the platform especially that one, let's take that one specifically, it was built on sand and um, it will crumble. It will crumble. It, by my saying it will crumble is the same thing as you saying someone else is going to say it loudly. It will fall. It can't. It's axiomatic. You cannot, you cannot build a solid movement with real delightful progress, good for everyone, if you are basing it on convenient lies or shadings of the truth because you think it's going to get you there faster. You just can't. It it will fall apart. So we are seeing some of these cases fall apart and the ones that should stand will stand. I believe that. I do not believe if Amber Heard loses, I absolutely do not believe that now every single woman will never again in the history of abuse have a case because of this. That's not how it is. It's just like with the abortion debate, all of a sudden tomorrow, we're all going to be wearing red robes. That's it. Like there's no, there's, there's no such thing as progress. There's no such thing as better thinking and, and better methods. No, we just go back. It's either one thing or it's over. This is ridiculous. That's not how the world, the world turns. We go on to have better questions or more interesting questions. And I think at this point in the culture, we are saying, okay, let's have some more sensible stuff regarding Me Too, regarding Title IX, regarding accusations that 
may make us feel a little queasy, but I don't know. You know, the larger agenda is more important. So let that guy or that gal, gal get thrown into the fiery pits of hell because, you know, that's what progress demands. No, um, we don't know if we're going to have the right, in air quotes, uh, answer from from the jury, but it's what we're going to have right now and it's what we're going to work with. So I'm I'm fascinated in it. You know, the legal system works on a binary. You are found guilty or you are found innocent. But human behavior exists on a spectrum. And relationships are a dynamic and a rather complicated one. And I am frustrated that so much of our conversation has fallen into that binary. Um, People are garbage heaps or not. They are monsters or not. They are villains or not. Um, this is nonsense. This is not a sophisticated way. This is not a helpful way to talk about human behavior. And I would like to see a turn away from that. Absolutely. So maybe that would be that moment. Nancy, you mentioned recovered memory earlier. And I wondered if this is an interesting time to pivot to another another controversial figure that you and I have been talking about. Oh, and I think we're going to really we're going to really go head to head on this one. Wow, cuz I'm losing you, Sarah. You know, we've just started our love affair and your head was already turned by someone younger and more attractive than me. I, you know, I'm She's not- very convincing. Well, I'm going to disagree with you there, but you know, um, so let's not, let's not keep this cloaked. Um, we're talking about someone named Teal Swan. T-E-A-L. Right. New word, S-W-A-N. I couldn't get my head around this name for a little bit. It's a real name, I think. Yeah. So, um, there is a new Hulu series called The Deep End, um, about, Teal Swan and her following. She she claims to be a um, kind of a, a healer, someone that will help you very new agey, you know, with advice. And um, she has ways to make your life better. Um, but there was also, and I can't believe I'm forgetting it, there was a six-part a podcast from 2018 that I Called listened to. The Gateway. Thank you. It's the done Gateway. by Gizmodo, bizarrely yeah. enough. It was quite it was quite good. Um I listened to it um the past couple of days. Um I so let let's just give a little background. She's 38 years old now. She's extremely telegenic. She's tall and shapely with very like long hennaed brown hair. She's pretty she looked like um a little bit like Gal Gadot and Crystal Gale kind of put together. So Crystal Gale had that long, long straight hair and Gal Gadot has those striking eyes. This woman has very striking green eyes. Um, she, she claims to have a, um, a very, very traumatic, uh, backstory. She was raised kind of like by hippies and then they kind of didn't know what to do with her because she claims that she had all these kinds of powers. She could like see like people with, they'd have auras and colors. She could see like the blood coursing through people. She, mm. she knew that she had been around and had other lives and didn't know what to do. And her parents were like, well, we tried to help her. And then they had a friend who was an a veterinarian who used like psychic healing on animals and said, Oh, give her to me for the weekends. I'll take her and help her. And she helped him with some veterinary stuff. But then she claimed 
he was a Satanist and she, he would use her to help import uh, Mexican children who they would then burn alive and sacrifice. And then also for 13 years, she was like horribly raped and kept and all of this. Well, of course, you know, spoiler alert, none of this can be authenticated in any way. Also, uh, listening to one of the last episodes of the podcast, because you asked me, you said, well, what, you know, what is her origin story and can it be authenticated? And what I did listen to yesterday and is that um, all she was born in 1984. So what was happening then? You had like the McMartin trials. You had women going back to work. So there was a certain amount of guilt of like leaving their children. You had this book called Michelle listen something I'll find it about a girl who said she had been like captured by Satanists well it turns out uh, uh, Teal Swan's origin stories are sort of a mismatch of all of these things that were happening in the culture um, she then and I guess at about age 19 starts to make um, videos online sort of these like new agey self-help things but with a very specific bent. Now, she may range wider wider with this, and it can be the case, as you said, that the people that are producing the podcast or producing the TV show are honing in on one particular thing. But it is one thing she hones in on. She, she is appealing to people who are suicidal, who are having troubles. And she does this by basically saying, are you feeling suicidal? I have felt suicidal too. And here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to lean into this. You need to lean into it. You have to picture, picture killing yourself, picture, picture all of the ways that this would happen. And also suicide is a relief. It's a reset. And you she have, believes in reincarnation. Yes. You have no idea how incredibly amazing suicide is. It feels amazing. And like, if you knew it, does she say that? Yeah, she said, oh yeah. And she like, because of course she knows this because she's had all these lives. Well, when you take people that are extremely low and extremely impressionable and you're appealing to them at YouTube in the middle of the night, which is how the guy from Gizmodo, he was actually... (laughs) He all of a sudden had, you know, when you're on YouTube and it's got like other ones on the right that you can click on, all of a sudden he had this thing for, for Teal Swan. He's like, huh? And he clicked on it and he found her interesting and then decided to do this podcast. Well, he looked back and tried, he, why did, why did that come up as a choice for him? Because he'd been listening to this song called Suicide is Painless. The theme song to MASH. Right. It's not to the theme song to MASH, but it's by some group. But they, you know, the algorithm picked that up. Anyway, has she had people that have killed themselves? Yeah. Um, This is obviously extremely disturbing. But what disturbed me a lot more is listening to her and watching her Okay, so I look, I've, I've, as some of people know here, have some people here know, I've interviewed a lot of uh, narcissistic sociopaths, including John Wayne Gacy, including Laura Albert. They've all been on their different spectrums and their different things. I personally have never seen anyone as terrifying as Teal Swan. And I've walked in these trenches, okay? So I looked up yesterday what the definition of a narcissistic sociopath is. And I wrote down, I bullet pointed a few of them. Um, Obsessed with control and power, takes advantage of others, no moral boundaries, 
has a huge discard pile. She's, by the way, she's 38 and has been married five times. Um, feeds off negative energy. Okay. She is, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm stating this. I don't care. Who knows it? She's a death eater. She is without a doubt getting some incredible energy out of people who are on the brink of of killing themselves. And she is, if she's not encouraging it, the exercises she does will push someone who is in a vulnerable place to a to a worse place. One of the things also that that I I mean, she's been called a cult leader. I definitely believe she is a cult leader who who preys on on people who are needy and people are needy. Every all of us in our lives at some point will be needy or weak or feeling sad or feeling desperate or feeling lonely. I do believe she is that person. And the example, I've only watched one of the episodes of um, of The Deep End, the second the one. The only one that's come out yet. Well, there is a, there's a second one, apparently, because when I was checking this morning for something, I saw that a second one had dropped. I think it just came out today or yeah. yesterday. Yeah. yeah. So um, in the episode... Um, there is a, there, you know, so she brings people to her retreat for which they pay thousands of dollars to talk or to be trained in this thing called the completest something or other. And this one guy says, well, yeah, this one guy says, well, so let me ask you a question, which is a very normal and human question. Like, who do you admire? Why are you asking me that? Are you nobody? Nobody. Well, who do you look to? Nobody. Are you saying are you saying, are you challenging me? Are you saying that you think that there's somebody that, that knows? Let's say I could take everybody in the entire world and I could measure how fast they run. And I found the fastest runner. Would you have the temerity to ask that person who runs faster than you? What is wrong with you? Okay. This is your spiritual healer. This is the person. She's like, would you ask Gandhi that? Well, yeah. And I'm sure he'd have an answer. This is the, to me, was the most striking moment in the uh, Deep End episode that I watched. It's, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll withhold judgment on her and the and the documentary until I finish it. But I have to say, it's cinematically beautiful. It's really done, well done. It's riveting. Um, but this moment is, gosh, really, uh, it's a cringe-inducing moment. It's ugly. And it's really it's ugly. really ugly. And I did watch uh, YouTube fed me <laughs> um, a video of her responding to the first episode. She had not seen it before it came out. She released her own counter-narrative. One of the things she wanted to clarify was that that conversation was much longer. It didn't exactly happen in the in the economic way it comes across in the sure. show that she herself thought she looked like a megalomaniac she didn't recognize the person that was being um well what portrayed. else is she gonna say what else is she gonna say right. sarah right um i i'd like to say a few things about teal swan if i can please um, so we learned about this person because my friend Andrea, who is a listener to our show, uh, sort of expressed to me via text that she would love me and Nancy to talk about this person. And I said, well, I don't even know what a teal swan is. I and didn't either. I sent it over to you and I was still texting with Andrea before Nancy's got my text blowing up 
with, you know, <laughs> thoughts about this person that she's just found. And I'm like telling Andrea, like, yeah, I think we're going to talk about this. <laughs> so when I went initially to her Instagram page and she just looks like a new age uh, social media influencer. She has about 660,000 followers. Um, she's pretty. She does sort of woo woo posts about sort of self care and, and, and getting your authentic self and uh, whatever boundaries and just crap like that. I mean, you know, it, it could be, it could be Brene Brown or it could be Glennon Doyle. I mean, she doesn't look that different than a lot of really accepted women that are working in the lane of a sort of female actualization and spiritual growth. Okay. So when I immediately went to watch The Deep End and then became very fascinated with her backstory because it's only told to you in little snippets that are kind of like, I was tied up and I was thrown in a pit. And you're like, I mean, I, this is, I mean, this is going to tell you a terrible truth about me, but I think it also just reveals me as a journalist that I'm, I hear those stories and I'm like, are we sure? Of course. Because I wrote something in an article when I was writing about, it might have been about Laura Albert and JT Leroy. I'm not sure. It's like we, the stories that sound too bad to be true, we, there's a, there's a part of us that instead of doubting, we kind of want, well, I mean, we, you and I want to check it, but they're very, very pers persuasive to the lay reader. Like you don't just say people that have fake, like children, especially there was like a boy called it. It wasn't oh, that you're just, yes. right. It's not just that you're, you're raped. You're not just that you're kidnapped, you're raped and you have cancer and your leg gets amputated and they make you eat feces. It's not, it, 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 we talked about this last time with, you always have to up the, in order to keep yeah. people's attention, you always yeah. have to up the terrible things that are happening to you. Yeah. So we, we talked about it, that in the trauma plot, uh, which I still can't get over that article and want to keep reading and reading and reading. But um, yeah, so Teal Swan's story, I've listened to it more deeply than you did on the podcast. It just goes up and up and up and up and up in order to keep, and you will hear her, her, her followers are like, what she has lived through, oh my God. God, if she can live through this, then I can live through what I'm going through, which then you could say, well, then Nancy, isn't she doing a service? What do you think, Sarah? Well, I want to say one more thing. I, I, it's such a good question. I want to I want to dig into that. But before we get to that, I want to talk about this backstory because I did also text my friend Mary, who is like getting her unofficial PhD in podcasts. So I knew she would know about this person. And she did. And I said, what do you think about, about Teal Swan? And she said, oh, you know, gosh, don't even get me started. But her mentor was Barbara Snow. Yes. And Barbara Snow is central to the satanic panic. Yes. And so, you know, this is, you've already alluded to this, but I just want to put a finer point on it. This comes from her Wikipedia page, uh, Teal Swan's Wikipedia page. Swan said that she has memories of these events which were repressed. This is being abused, raped, and psychologically tortured until a Salt Lake City-based therapist helped her uncover them. An investigation was opened into her claims before being ultimately shut down due to several accusations being made against her therapist, Barbara Snow, who was part of inciting a satanic panic in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, it does. It looks like people don't want to quite look too hard at these allegations. And she has distanced herself from the satanic thing because we didn't hear that. We didn't hear that in the deep end. 
we heard that it was some, you know, vague, nefarious 67-year-old man that comes in to help her. And there was no mention of Satanism and any of that stuff in the documentary. Now, I understand you're telling me the podcast goes deeper into this. Sure. But, you know, it, it comes across as... I mean, listen, if you tell me that this happened because of a satanic ritual thing that happened in the 80s, I'm like, my bullshit meter is like at an all-time high. Every alarm is blaring. Right. But if you tell me that your parents had you spending time at six years old with a 67-year-old man who had alternative therapies, and, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, oh God, okay, okay. I mean, it, it, it was it was dinging. But it wasn't like off the charts. I, I just all I did was ask you, like Nancy, has anybody checked her backstory? And if you're question, if you were a serious person operating, you know, for the good of other people, um, I mean, first of all, I think you might have someone you admire. You might not say, as um, as she also said, that she has access to everything that's ever been thought or said. You know, I might, I might, have that might, too. might, might. Oh, you do. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, that's right. I forgot. Um, would you not? At some point, name this person that did this to you for 13 years? Would you not think that that would be a service to other human beings to maybe say, you know what, this guy, you know, murdered children, raped me for 13 years, kept me a prisoner, but I'm not going to say his name. What? What? I'm curious uh, what her mother says about this because her mother has been interviewed about Teal. Does she... Is she interviewed in the podcast? So there was one very short bit with the mother from an, or didn't talk to the podcaster, but a little short bit of an interview with her just saying, yeah, she was always a very unusual child. She was very smart. We weren't, yet. we, we, she had some, they had taken her to some, like for therapy because she was just not very well. Um, and they just kind of couldn't figure out what was going on. And that was about, it. I, I don't know. I'm I'm assuming, but we they didn't revisit the mother, that the mother is sort of sort of like maybe like a like a Whitney Heard. Yeah. She's in the she's in the fan club um by necessity. And also people that are people that are skilled at manipulating you, who is gonna believe you more than your mother? Okay, your mother's always going to believe you. She's going to not believe what everybody else says about you. So I'm gonna assume that her parents are still um, in her camp, but one, just one other thing I want to say, because what Teal, what Teal Swan does is she does, um, specialize in, in, um, with like shadow memories, what are the shadow work? So she tells people. Yes, she's a Jungian. She, she's very influenced by Carl Jung. So these things that happen, you don't remember them. You don't remember them, but these things happen. And then people eventually start to remember them, right? After, you know, hours of meditating and humming and this and being thought. And also you want to tell this great mentor that you think is going to help you with your life and is helping and saving the world because she's telling you, you will start remembering these things. But there's one interesting person on one of the last podcasts. She'd been friends with Teal Swan when they both worked someplace. And then Teal Swan invited her to dinner. And she's like, great, they're having dinner. And Teal Swan's like, I, I brought you here for a different reason. Because we were, do you, you don't remember, you might not remember, but we were friends in a past life where we were like sacrificed. That was, and her friend's like, uh, dude, I remember my childhood. This did not happen. And Teal Swan kept going back and hammering it and hammering it. And this girl's like, this is not true. And eventually she just passed her a note that said, Barbara Snow, go see Barbara Snow. Oh my. So it, she, she's very insistent on, she will have her way. And create this because she can get people to believe 
that they have these incredibly traumatic pasts that only Teal Swan can heal. Now, if this is not, if this is not villainous, I don't, I don't know what is. I, I, again, I think this is the core of the question and I want to get to that. I want to make um, a couple of, just put finer points on a couple of things. She called, the, the name of her program is The Completion Process. Okay. Right. And this is basically what she calls an extremely intense soul retrieval process. Soul retrieval. Bite me. And she sees her sort of, her revolutionary idea in this, in this space of spiritual growth or whatever is, is to say, don't ask what's wrong with you. Ask what happened to you. Okay. So this feels like a nail in search of a hammer kind of idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like you're basically going to, you're going to find something. Uh, if, if this is what you're set out, you know, something, something happened to you to, to describe why you're like this. Okay. Um, I was interested in this, in this issue of the suicide thing is, is to me the most damning of all the stuff that you've talked about. Um, she says in her video again, or the YouTube video responding to the first episode, I don't condone suicide full stop. So, you know, whatever she has said in the past, uh, whatever lawsuits she is facing, her message, she's very much trying to convey the message that whatever she was saying, and I think she has some like alternative ideas about life and reincarnation. And and that's, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of the world that believes in reincarnation. This is, we can't really see this as a fringe idea. Only in America would that be seen as a fringe idea because there are countries where that is that is an accepted idea. So, you know, I, I think we have, to, I, I, I also was curious how many of her followers had committed suicide. I watched an anti Teal Swan video where the guy said it was four. Uh, I know there is at least one very high profile, high profile, meaning that the media has talked about this. Um, she has around 27,000 people that call themselves Tealers. And, um, so that's quite a number of people. Her videos have been viewed 55 million times as of the podcast. So I just want to put that into context. Uh, You know, I, I guess I, I, I'm not pushing back on what you're saying so much as I want to put, um, maybe some context around it. There are people who follow her that have killed themselves. Uh, they also came to her because they were suicidal. I think we need to be careful about saying they killed themselves because of her message. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, she has a very large following and a small, per- I don't know what the percentage is that have actually committed suicide. I will, let's go back to what you were saying just now, a nail in search of a hammer. She gets people that are low. All right. They're, for whatever reason, they're feeling low. And she, she, I am, we've talked about this before in terms of the trauma myth and, and, and how you deal with maybe hard things. Like, what do you do? Do you, do you focus on it? Do you focus? Because everyone, anything we feed grows, anything, a plant, a child, a cat, you know, anything, a book, anything you feed grows. So 
do you want to, does she take people that are feeling low and then they, they go back in their, their mind and they find they had a beautiful childhood where they were loved and comfortable and always had the right amount of peanut butter on their sandwich? Well, no, because then they don't need Teal Smith. Okay. They always go back and it's always, not always, but there's a certain set of trauma, right? It's my, I was raped. You know, one gal they were talking to yesterday in the podcast, it's like, she started out realizing that, you know, her father didn't love her. Well, then it turned out that he was abusing her. Then it was, she was, he raped her as an infant. It just like kept going on and on in order to feel that, I don't know, in order to feel that they were deserving of being Teelers uh, in order to, to make, make Teal Swan even more heraldic. I don't know. But the idea that you are going to take people that are vulnerable and encourage them to, I'm sorry, Sarah Haplot, you're having people create memories that are not real. I mean, we remember, I guess it was about 15 years ago, I mean, all these these women that were remembering that their fathers had sexually abused them. This was a this was a this was a trend in psychiatry, right? It's it's the one you're talking about, and it's I know personally one girl whose whose family was totally destroyed by this. That's right. In quote recovered memory of hers, and she's never spoken to her father again. And the rest of the family is like, what the fuck? Now, of course, this can happen, and people do deny that they've they've done these things, of course. But things happen in waves. Um, I I see. Teal Swan very much as a modern day cult leader using the current, you know, sort of new agey stuff, probably they've used since time immemorial. I've written about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who was the uh, guru uh, who, you know, his, his, his cult tried to, um, they perpetrated a mass poisoning in the Dolls, Oregon. I mean, these things This is the subject of Wild Wild West, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I wrote about them. I actually went out to the children's camp where they had the ranch outside of, uh, outside in Oregon. Um, You know, in my experience, having written about a lot of cults and a lot of people that, even if they didn't have a cult, they sort of had a cult, like the J.T. Leroy kind of thing. It always ends badly. It always ends badly because, again, it's built on lies. I mean, the it was interesting. The Teal Smith podcast took place at this like weird little hidden enclave in Costa Rica. Well, yeah. why do people start moving to Costa Rica and Guyana and everything? Because shit ain't, it's a little too dicey here in the States, but I guess she's back here. I mean, that was my impression from the, um, from the documentary, which is more, which is more current. Um, you know, uh, I was so sort of spooked by a lot of the scenes in the deep end. They were very intense, this soul retrieval thing. It was taking place at a training that's a little higher level for her. I was very curious about like, well, what if you go on YouTube and you just look at it or you just watch your videos? So that's what I was watching yesterday. And I was like, that's when I texted you. And I was like, Nancy, I kind of dig these. They're pretty good. She had some really interesting ideas around interconnectedness. Like what? Name one. Can you? I can. I mean, yeah. basically, like, there's this video that says what women should know about men. And she describes men as needing to feel useful, appreciated. She describes the uh, the 
why it's such a bad idea to become sort of nagging and nitpicking that they really appreciate direct communication, um, that a lot of women end up, you know, because we're socialized to kind of like go sideways with things or expect people to read their minds, like what a disaster that is. Um, She also describes, I think, you know, the fallacy of presenting yourself as an independent agent in the world and this idea of kind of like, I've got this, I don't need you. And what it does is push people away. I learned this the hard way. I had a lot of men tell me these things over the years, over the last 10 years. I have gone from a pretty you know, feisty, like I can do everything myself. I'm a woman in the world to like, no, I, I have become softer and, and being willing to say, I need someone, I need you in my life because I was unintentionally pushing men away, the very men that I wanted to attract. And uh, I thought they would be impressed with me because I was so strong and independent and I was, they might've been impressed with me, but I was, I was giving them the message that I didn't need someone. I very much did need want someone just not to pay my bills. Although now I do. So. (laughs) I mean, what she said is commonsensical. I think it might be commonsensical, but it's not, it, I would actually describe a lot of her videos as common sense, but they it is also lost wisdom in an age when a lot of these ideas had become unfashionable. Well, that yes, there there's something to that. And I also wonder how and if people will actuate that particular thing because they saw Teal Swan say it or if they're going to need to go a little deeper, like if that's the gateway, huh? no pun, that was the name of the drug. I mean, you know, my, my impression is that there is a big, big, big community online, you know, and once you like, you know, maybe if you're a runner, you first do like a little 5k and then you're going to do a 10k and then you're going to really commit to running. I have no idea if that's, if that's, um, something that is desired in, in teal land, if they kind of encourage you to become part of a community, but also Sarah Hapala, you're, you know, you're a person who's curious. You're, 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 uh, you've, you've done a lot in your life. You're accomplished. You're interested. You're skeptical when you should be. You are not, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you're not the typical person that is tuning into Teal Swan. Well, I found her through very artificial means. I mean, I, I was, I was actually sent by somebody that said, go out and tell me what you think of Teal Swan. So no, I didn't find her that way. But I have been in in periods of time where I went down different YouTube rabbit holes and I I watched a lot of the videos of Jordan Peterson at one point um, at a, a very dark time in my life. They were about, a, he's also a Jungian. Um, you know, his pieces, which this is sort of predates him being recast as like an alt-right figure. I'd never heard of the guy. And he just happened to be a psychology professor that had put a bunch of his lectures online. And they were getting kind of recast in this very YouTube-y way with like, Jordan Peterson destroys your ideas about feminism or whatever the hell it is. You know, I I found them largely non-controversial, deeply full of wisdom, and, you know, again, this predates his controversy around, Yeah, he, he really steps right into the culture wars and becomes a huge figure because of it. But um, I, I did watch a lot of those. One of the things that he speaks to 
is is the same thing we're dealing with in AA. You know, I, I found Jordan those videos about ten years after I started in AA. So I was on a sort of deeper path. You know, quitting drinking had worked for me, but it had only worked so much. And I needed to get to a different level. When the documentary with Teal Swan opens, you hear from our audience members why they've come to an event that she does. And the things they say are things like this. I'm stuck. I'm lost. I'm lonely. I'm numb. This is basically any place that you ask audience members, any in the self-help world or the religious world or wherever it is, that's what they're going to tell you. And, you know, I think I'm so fascinated by the subject of belief that, you know, I think I have a little bit more of an agnostic take on the word cult, in part because AA has been portrayed many times through the media as a cult. I'm aware of what it is to be a part of that group. Um, and it looks very different from my perspective. And I'm accustomed to seeing what I perceive as a sort of program of service and personal responsibility reframed as one that destroys people, people kill themselves. I mean, I, you know, like I've heard all sorts of wild stories about people and AA. It's something that has 2 million members. So, you know, you can really extrapolate a lot of tragedies from that. I think that if you were to look at, and the one that would come, uh, I was going to say, the, if you look at modern religions, um, the one that's easiest to study, I think, is um, Mormonism. Yeah, And sure. you and I have spoken about Shot in the Heart. The Michael Gilmore book that talks about, that's sort of where I learned about the history of Mormonism. And it's interesting because it's a newer religion. Scientology is another one. There's a book on Scientology by Larry Wright that that got a lot of a lot of coverage. Oh, well, I, I read that. What was that called? That was good. Um, uh, what was that? Going clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the good. The prison Lawrence and the good. subhead. The subhead, I believe, was the prison of belief. And so one of the things we see is the ways that people in a modern society are reaching out for things that in a previous society, uh, religion had given to them. Um, a sense that you are not alone in the world, a sense that you have a purpose, a sense that you are a child of God, for lack of a better phrase. And Without that, there is sometimes an existential darkness that overcomes people and they go to different places for it. Um, it might be drugs and alcohol. It might be music and basketball. Yeah, I'm going to take that one. Uh-huh. And it might also be a place like Teal Swan. Um, bef I, I, I well, want to hear more thoughts. You so go go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I want to say one thing about AA and cult versus Teal Swan and cult. So I've had plenty of friends that have gone into AA, and it is absolutely the case in my experience that the first eight months to a year that they are part of it, you can never not hear about it. Every single time you meet them, oh, the talking and the this. And did you know? That? And you know what? You love them. You're your friend. You're like, yeah, I know. They got to do this thing. It gets a little boring, but you know what? It's their thing. But then you know what? Within, you know, a year, they're helping other people. 
They're being sponsors. They don't talk about it all the time. Every, like everything kind of resets and it's fine. In AA, there is not one person who will be the Godhead for all time. Teal Swan will be the Godhead for all time to the point where you saw in the last episode. First of all, I'd also like to say I find her extremely angry mm. and not very smart. That's my opinion of her. But the final shot of the first episode, she's sitting in a chair with her usual kind of like, kind of like she just smelled a fart face on. And she's like looking at the camera and she's like, <laughs> you know, you know, people say, people say, I'm not going to be bigger than the Pope. <laughs> I'm going to be bigger than the Pope. Watch. Without any sense of humor. She, she says she was making a joke. She says well, that was the well, joke. Well, Okay. She can be a little bit funny on stage. I saw her be a little spontaneous on stage, a little bit funny. I find her to be, I find her to be a viper and not funny. And she will remain the Godhead. She does not seem to be me to be there in order to help people and then say, go on your way, little bird, fly. No, you are going to be part of the teal cult. And what can you do for me? The Teal Swan conversation really made me hungry to read an essay that I think is one of the best essays I've read. That seems like high praise, but I think I'm going to go ahead and lay those tracks for it. It's a 1976 essay in New York Magazine by Tom Wolfe, and it's the one where he coins the me decade. And one of the reasons that this is one of my favorite essays is that Wolfe, who became a controversial figure later in his life in part because he was probably conservative. Um, and he played a little fast and loose with narrative. Anyway, um, oh my goodness, I love this man. And I really, really love the big chunk that he will take with his teeth out of culture. I mean, this essay is a turkey leg. <laughs> on a cultural critique. <laughs> it takes you through history, politics, advertising, therapy, um, and and it is it is so full of helping us figure out how we got here. Here being 1976, he opens at a therapeutic gathering where people are talking about the things they are, tr they're sort of like in search of their authentic self. So, you know, you have spoken about the seventies um, and some of the ways that parents were absent. Part of why they were absent, as we've discussed, is that they were in search of a sort of personal fulfillment. Um, and so he has a couple of moments I just want to quote from. I just, I, th this helped make so much sense of the world to me. And I just really miss this, this little dapper white suited man. Yeah. Um, he opens one section by telling us that in 1961, a copywriter named Shirley Polikoff was working for an advertising agency on the Clairol hair dye account when she came up with the line, if I've only one life, let me live it as a blonde. In a single slogan, she had summed up what might be described as the secular side of the me decade. If I've only one life, let me live it as a blank. You only have to fill in the blank. So 
One of the things he's pointing out here is that by the 70s, there is an idea of a sort of you have an authentic self underneath the self that you have been given. Maybe you want to be a blonde. Maybe you want to be an astronaut. Maybe you want to be a rock star. Maybe you want to be uh, a drug user. Maybe you want to be a Jesus freak. There is something that is in you. I, I have thought so much about you know our cultural fascination with authenticity, which is like this idea that the, that the self is just an onion and inside, or let me use it this way. The self is like a Tootsie Pop roll and you can just, you can just lick away the, the lollipop and eventually you're going to get to this center that is the authentic self. Well, I mean, this is a little bit of a misnomer because the self is, is created <laughs> in relation to others and society's rules. I mean, if you get down to the self, it's probably some goddamn animal that just wants to fucking fight all the time. I don't <laughs> think you really want that. But <laughs> it's also the case like you uh, are you the same person that you were when you were seven no. or 14? Yes or and 24? no. Yes and no, yeah, well, right? There's a little. Yeah, there's like a trip, but like you actually change like you you change a lot based on like your ambitions and who you meet and where you go. And it's not like you're getting down to one essence. I don't believe that. I believe you're like, actually just the opposite. It's sort of like the multiverse. Like you're, it's not like you're just adding things on top. You're actually just, you're changing. You're, you're, you're evolving. I think that's a and, word. And you are shaped by your time and your, the, the country in which you land, the state and city in which you land, the parents with whom you share your lives or don't. Um, you know, Wolf is obsessed with social structures and, and institutions and how they shape our lives. This is one of the things I think is so powerful about him. Um, he has a line here that the right to shuck overripe wives and take on fresh ones was once seen as the prerogative of kings only. And even then it was scandalous. Today, in the me decade, it becomes normal behavior, one of the factors that have pushed the divorce rate above 50%. Right there in that sentence, you can see a massive cultural change in the way people live their lives. They, if they only have one life to live, I'm not living it with this wind back. No, and, and, and people don't. I want to. I want to just uh, gonna kind of sew this, not sew it up, because I still have one other th little thing I want to talk about. But I want to bring together the '70s and cult leaders. So Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, which some people may have heard of, we'll put some links here. I've written about him, but um, the way I actually heard about him initially was from a friend of mine in Hollywood. We were in our 20s. Uh, it was like I guess like the early 90s, something like this, and. Um, her mother, she'd been a, she grew up in, um, in like Scarsdale or something. She had two siblings and her father like worked on Wall Street or something. Her mother was home with the kids, but was always interested. Was a good writer. Maybe had done some writer and, um, started hearing this, this Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and left the family, left her mm -hmm. and her siblings and went off and lived <clears throat> in India where, where Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh originally was and became his sort of writer. She was a good writer. Well, the people in that cult, which is very often when you're in a cult, you're told, well, listen, you're kind of the cream of the crop. You guys are going to be in charge of making a better world. It was the, I guess, late 60s, early 70s. You had a lot of people that were like searching and it attracted like all these like engineers and like, like, like professionally successful people. But of course, just like in every cult, you need to cut off from your family. 
They can't have your family influencing you because then, you know, then there's not the hegemony of the cult. So the mother basically was uh, gone from her children and everything, moved uh, with the cult to Oregon, was still writing Rajneesh's books, was seeing things, you know, had a new husband, was seeing things degrade, saw how they, they tried to poison people. And of course, the cult wind up, it wound up completely uh, self-destructing, which is how these things go. But she wrote an incredible book called The Promise of Paradise. Mm. And I actually, I think I've read it two or three times. And it is so <clears throat> incredibly balanced. She doesn't just go full bore, like, I can't believe what an idiot I was, or I can't believe I sacrificed my family. And, and I'll give like one tiny spoiler just because I will, because most people will not read the book. But she finally did leave the cult with her new husband. And she had some reuniting with her children, and and that was a beautiful thing. These children were now like young adults, and her son was one of the sons was walking in San Francisco, and was uh, randomly murdered by a stranger, like right mm. after he'd finally, you know, she'd mm. finally got to know her child. And mm. I, it was obviously she didn't look at it as recompense or anything for what yeah. she'd done, but it was tragic. Um, it's a really incredible book at um, what the inside of a cult looks like what is demanded. And and really, if you study cults, cults at all, and I, I sometimes feel like I could write, you know, cult leaders, cult leadership for dummies, because I've looked into a bunch <laughs> of them. It's always the same thing. It's always, you know, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be free love because you're not allowed to do that. Otherwise, there's yes. going to be like vibrations. There's yes. going to be, we're going to meditate for three hours. We're going to no. spin in circles. We're going no. to only eat vegan food. No. We're going to have the day. It's, it's all very, it's, it's not, actually that imaginative. And I, I have to tell you, and we'll put a button on, on Teal Swan for now, there's more episodes to come. Um, I found her to be exceptionally unoriginal. Mm -hmm. I do like the idea that like this is what men are like. I, I think that that's right what she said. I also think that's what women are like. I mean, it's sort of like, I, do we want to be like, you know, want to be told the truth to and common sense and all this and feel useful. Women yeah, don't I like do. straightforward dialogue. Women don't. That's how you're different from women. They don't I, well, like straight. I they they really like to be hint, hinting and they, they get their feelings hurt so easily. Yeah, I'm not that person. My husband used to say to me, I would say, <laughs> I was like, you know, babe, sometimes I read that women are supposed to be like really mysterious. Like that's he's like, oh, please don't. <laughs> please don't. Please, don't. yeah. It was a joke because, yeah, I'm not. I'm very, I'm very direct. But um, I want to say one more thing before we leave. Is that okay? Yeah, or? yeah I do want to mention one thing about San Francisco before we wrap up. It's a little bit of a long episode. Sorry, guys. Hope you had an extra few miles to drive in your car. The idea, you know, when you describe people leaving their family in order to pursue a noble um, pursuit that often has to do with their own self-actualization, it actually reminds me of the kind of things we've seen in political tribalism recently. So if you, you know, you're talking about cults, but I've heard this with, you know, like, leave your family if they're Republicans. So, oh, sure. You know, oh, sure. So I, I just want to point out that this is in many ways part of a larger story of a society that is moving from a sense of collective duty to one of individual freedom. And individual freedom says that the family bonds do not matter as much as the personal self-actualization. And I think it's a road that has taken me down many interesting paths, but it also is a, a potentially dangerous one because it leaves us disconnected. When 
I see a bunch of people in the audience talking about I'm stuck, I'm numb, I'm lonely. Um, what I look at is the modern affliction of of loneliness and solitude that is just amplified by the internet. They find each other through the internet. They stay in this sort of loop of isolation without the, you know, this sort of like soul, like the sort of muscle movement of connection without the soul satisfaction of it. And and I think this is going on across culture. So while I think Teal Swan is a is a very specific and fascinating subject, I think she's just She's just a product of the age. And I want to talk about cults with you more down the we line. We will. We will. We will talk more about cults. I'm going to just, we'll just uh, very quickly, I am leaving a week from today. I'm going to San Francisco. I'm going to San Francisco for the recall of District Attorney Chesa Boudin. Um, first of all, anybody who's in San Francisco, maybe if you want to grab a coffee, I'm going to be there. Or if you know anybody that's involved in this story or has some uh, some thoughts about it, I, I'd be interested to hear from you. So Chesa Boudin is the son of two um, of David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin. They were parts of uh, 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 the SDS, uh, st- Students for Democratic Society. Is that right? Ooh, Am I getting that yes. right? Uh, and then they became very involved um, in the Weather Underground. Uh, they were then, um, <clears throat> they were part of a botched Brinks robbery um, with a bunch of Black Panthers and blank black revolutionaries when Chesa Boudin was like 14 months old. It went terribly awry and they each went to prison uh, for murder. He was then raised by Bill Ayers and Bernadine, whose last name I'm forgetting. They were like the head of the Weather Underground. So he has two sets of very, very sort of revolutionary anarchistic parents. And now he's the DA of San Francisco. And there's been a perception um, that San Francisco has had some degrading and he's been in charge of it and people don't like it. It's an interesting story. I was there for the San Francisco school board recall. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to what I wrote about that. They were recalled very handily and should have been. Well, people, you know, just like you're sort of saying, like we're moving uh, around, uh, you know, maybe Me Too is sort of fading into the background. We want sort of better ideas or or richer or more whole ideas. Well, progressive progressivism in certain very progressive cities, people are getting a little upset. They're looking at it and they're saying, we see more poop on the street. There's actually a poop app in San Francisco because there's so much human fecal matter on the street. Are there's, you serious? Um, yeah, there's a poop app. I, I haven't seen it, but I, I've been told about it. There, um, you know, there's more murders. There are murders, but there's more murders across the country. Uh, there's more, you know, there's the whole shoplifting issue. The issue of like, if you're caught with, you know, less than $950, it's just a misdemeanor and then they don't, they don't prosecute misdemeanors. Well, they're blaming they're putting this on Boudin's doorstep. Well, it's interesting because some yes and and some no. Some of it, I think, is we're just ready for the next phase. And so he's going to be the poster boy. But I do think he's going to be recalled. Um, Anyway, I'll be there covering that. We will do some... um, we will do some podcasting from the scene. It, it's not quite as sexy as Depp heard, but um, I'll be bringing you those stories. Um, and if there's anyone here that's listening that has some, um, you can either, you can um, you can email me directly or just put something here, send us an email because I'm interested in hearing your thoughts because I'm string gathering right now. And it's a, it's an interesting story. It definitely, definitely is a story of our time. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm very interested to see where, where it's going. So. I cannot wait to learn more. Yeah, and I'm going to book out of here because I got to get, I got to go co-host a TV show, Sarah Heppola, that you're going to be a guest on, and I got to go, I got to go fix my hair. So, um, guys, thanks everybody for spending a long episode with us. Um, tell your friends, um, subscribe, and um, yeah, send us your and letters. Send so us your questions. Them. Yeah, questions yeah, and yeah. and letters, reader mail. We want 
we want to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Sarah Huffalo. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. I was searching, searching. 